Hey kids, Mandy here, and I wanted to personally invite you to join me for Cincinnati Song Initiative's first ever Fellowship of the Song, happening May 20th through 25th. In addition to a week full of amazing concerts, song workshops, and classes, I'll be leading some seriously fun study events on heartwarming topics such as murder ballads and exploring death through music and poetry. Should be a great time! (laughs) You can participate as an auditor, whether you come to Cincinnati in person or join remotely from your comfiest couch. And the best part is that all the week's events will be recorded for unlimited viewing through June 26th. So, what are you waiting for? Head to cincinnatisonginitiative.org forward slash audit to learn more about this groundbreaking new program for song. And I hope to see you in person or online. Welcome to Follow the Leader with me, your host, Mandy Madrid Sikic. If you are a fan of the podcast, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. And remember, if you like what we are doing on the podcast, tell your friends. And if you don't, then tell your enemies, because as I like to say, any publicity is good publicity. Don't forget, hosting another giveaway. I will be giving away a copy of Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau's Book of Leader. All you have to do is write a review for the podcast and send a screenshot of your review to followtheleaderpodcast at gmail.com. I will be announcing the winner of the giveaway on the last episode of the season. All right, kids. Today, I am genuinely, authentically stoked out of my mind to bring you a super special guest host. Perhaps the specialist guest host we've ever had on the podcast. It's true. I met with Susan Ewins over Zoom a few weeks ago to chat, you know, just super casually, (laughs) about Winterreise, and in particular to discuss our song for today, Das Wirtshaus. Susan, of course, had so many incredible things to say, so I'm just going to shut up and let her do the talking. Uh, Before we dig in, however, I do want to read you a translation of the text, as I think it's important for you to know what's going on before we get all nerdy and dig into the nitty-gritty analysis. All right, here we go. Das Wirtshaus. To a graveyard has my path brought me. Here will I lodge, I thought to myself. You green funeral wreaths must be the signs inviting tired travelers into the cool inn. Are then in this house all the rooms occupied? I am weary to dropping. I am mortally wounded. O unmerciful inn, do you then turn me away? Now farther, only farther, my true wander staff. My interview with Susan lasts about an hour, and then you'll hear a performance of Das Wirtshaus, of course sung by the inimitable Dr. Tyler Reese. Are you ready? Okay, 
Here we go. here with us today on Follow the Leader. I cannot express how thrilled I am and how thrilled I know my listeners are to have you here. Thanks so much for meeting with us. Thank you. I know that, you know, most of my listeners are aware of you and are aware of your writings just because I, I refer to your writings quite often on the podcast. Um, but I was wondering if you could give a little introduction of yourself. Sure. Well, for starters, I was born and grew up in Houston, Texas, as one of twin daughters of an architect and landscape photographer. I went to undergraduate school at Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas, which is one of my favorite places on earth. It's close to Austin, a city I love, and I studied piano with the fabulous Drusilla Huffmaster and took every music history class that the equally marvelous Ellsworth Peterson ever taught. In fact, I'm still taking classes from him at age 88. He teaches a course on Bach cantatas every Sunday evening, and I wouldn't miss it. He sent me to Harvard for graduate school, which I somehow managed to survive. That was where he had gotten his PhD, so he wanted me to go there. And I sang in a fabulous choir, studied voice with an extraordinary teacher, loved the library there. It's, it's my idea of heaven on earth, the Widener Library and the music library. Uh, and after graduating, I taught at Washington University in St. Louis, where I didn't get tenure. They invited me back years later for to give a lecture and introduced me as, quote, the one we stupidly let get away. <laughs> After that, I taught at Ithaca College and then at the University of Notre Dame. During my years in St. Louis, I came to know Dr. Paul Amadeus Pisk, who died in 1990 at the age of 95. He was one of Arnold Schoenberg's composition students and a critic, conductor, musicologist of the first rank. He escaped Austria in the 30s and, of course, came to California to be with the Schoenbergs and then founded the musicology department at the University of Texas 
in Austin where my grandfather was dean of English. I got my love of poetry from my grandfather. So uh, I'm not sure what Paul Pisk saw in me as untutored and raw and green as I was, but he took me in hand and I now work in the house that was his gift to me when he died. So I'm retired from Notre Dame now and love my new life with my obsessive compulsive garden, my cats, and writing projects galore. It sounds truly like heaven. (laughs) (laughs) It is. So I'm curious where along the way you discovered Schubert and where a love for Schubert came from. Well, it was a long and winding road, I've got to say. I studied French all through high school and college and absolutely adored the poetry and the songs of Gabriel Fauré, Claude Debussy. I loved Verlaine. I loved Mallarmé. I loved the Parnassians. So I was forced to write a dissertation on two nobodies of 16th century polyphonic chanson because back in that day, you didn't write about 19th century music. Graduate school didn't let me write a dissertation on French song. Why not? I'm super curious. Well, they said, make up your mind whether you want to be in literature or in musicology. And if you want to be in musicology, write a proper musicological dissertation. And at that time, it meant either ethnomusicology for a really tyrannical professor or medieval and Renaissance music. So I chose late Renaissance. Uh, It was required to be 200 pages. So I think my dissertation is 201 pages of real crap. And I <laughs> I love that. That's hilarious. A copy of it for 45 years. <laughs> so when I ran back to French song as fast as my legs could take me. Then when I was 30 years old, I had gotten in the habit of traveling to Boston every summer to do research or going to Europe or going to New York. So I was in New York and there was a rare occasion of Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau and Gerald Moore performing Winterkaiser. Now, from wonderful Ellsworth Peterson at Southwestern, of course, I knew about Winterkaiser, but I was too young back then to take it in. But when I was 30 and had been through a slew of travails, it 
just hit me upside the jaw like a TKO. At the end of the concert, I was silently crying so hard that the usher had to sort of sweep me out with the trash. So when I went home, I had to find out why that work had affected me so strongly. I could recognize that this was a life-changing event, that my life was going to take a different tack from that moment on. So I began reading everything I could find on the subject, which wasn't much. And what I found, I heartily disagreed with. None of it met with my experience of that work. So I decided to write an article about it because that's what music historians do. And it grew and grew and grew until over the course of 10 years, it became a book. And there wasn't a model for writing a book like this. And I had to figure out who I was addressing. Am I talking to musicologists? Am I talking to performers? Am I talking to educated musicians? Who is my readership? And I think I came up with a readership that really wasn't very standard at the time. So it was all a big, bloody, protracted battle, but it was rejected by one press. You know, I was a totally unknown quantity, so, and this was a new enterprise, so Oxford University Press said no. That is unbelievable. (laughs) Absolutely unbelievable. Well, like Washington University, they later said it was one of their biggest mistakes. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Cornell University Press was a wonderful uh, first press because they taught me so much. I mean, what did I know about writing and producing a book? So this was your first book? Yes. Wow. And it was written against the backdrop of not being a native German, not having much by way of self-confidence, having to forge a clearer writing style. Paul Pesk used to laugh at sentences that romped on with dependent clauses splitting off at every turn. So I had to come up with a clearer writing style and just nothing came easily. I have to say that the greatest reward for me always is when performers, usually pianists, but not entirely, read what I've written and are influenced by it when they bring the music to life and performance. That, to me, is the highest accolade I can receive. You know, when I was younger, song was, as it was throughout the whole 19th century, was a secondary genre. Clara Schumann was not the only person, I'm sure, who urged her husband to write orchestral works. The Texas-sized genres by which you could become really well-known. 
and songs were decried as little, as female, as lesser. But when you start delving into a lead by a real master of the genre to a poem by Marika Heiner Goethe, the real estate may be small, but the depths are immeasurable. They go so deep, and there's so many nuances and multiple meanings that sound simultaneously. It's a very complex genre. I could not agree with you more. Of course, the book that we're referring to is Retracing a Winter's Journey, Schubert's Winterreise. Um, My listeners know it well. (laughs) Uh, But I'm wondering if, because part of the appeal for me about Winterreise is that every time I, I come to it, I leave it again with even more questions. And I'm wondering if if you found yourself returning to it over the years and have perhaps changed your viewpoints on some things or, or sure. simply had a transformation through deeper understanding as more life events happen. Absolutely. I know I'd like to rewrite the chapter on Del Hyerman and talk about its multifariousness because the the figure of the hurdy-gurdy player has been interpreted all sorts of ways and with reason it invites multiple readings is it an hallucination of the wanderer's own feared old age is it a vision is it flesh and blood. What is he and what does he mean at that point in the journey? And there are different ways of interpreting him. And what I'd love to do is go back and revisit that chapter and take into account as many of the different readings of that last poem as I could. It's, it's a real boffo of a poem. It's my favorite one in the poetic cycle, because if you define lyric poetry as minimalist language, maximalist meaning, then Del Hyerman is a marvelous example of that definition. Uh, language shaved to a bare minimum but expressing so much. So, yes, uh, if you live with a really great piece of music, you're going to, one hopes, find your view of it expanding. Absolutely. You know, you actually brought up um, one a question that I was going to ask you was uh, if you had a favorite poem within the cycle. <laughs> and then also, is that also your favorite song? Or do you think that there's another setting that's more effective or perhaps is maybe a favorite? Well, Delahman is a song to reduce any listener to rubble. If they're listening properly... Uh, because the, the feat of drawing an entire 63-measure song out of one harmony, a tonic A minor chord with its dominant 
superimposed on it at times. And then this skeletal complex melody. I mean, it's a feat of imagination that I can't even quite take in because it requires such creative genius to come up with that. But I think, all in all, my favorite song is Der Wegweiser, because Der Wegweiser bespeaks a revelation within the mind and heart. He's been on this inner journey without direction, trying to psychoanalyze himself along the way. And he's just in despair at that point. What have I done to deserve this? Nothing. And the desperation in the question is enough to open the door of fate. And he sees the pathway for the first time. One of the things I love about Schubert is that he takes concepts in the poetry and turns them into the architecture of a song. It's not just word painting. It's something about the very formal building of the song that is bound up with his reading of the poem. For example, in Der Wegweiser, for that last page, you have... When he first sees einen Weiser, sehe ich stehen, unverrückt vor meinem Blick. You have, in the voices in the piano, you have voice exchange, the wanderer, the image, going back and forth, reflecting each other. Then when he repeats those words, he does what Renaissance artists discovered about perspective, that if you have two straight lines far apart and you bring them together until they converge on a vanishing point, then you have the illusion of depth. So in the last statement of those words, the outer voices in the piano come together. And by that time, I'm just putty in Schubert's hands because, first of all, it's a, it's a Baroque gesture in music to do that and a very complicated concept. So, you know, Schubert used to be decried as simple next to Beethoven, and that couldn't be more false. It, it is one complex piece. You know, um, that to me touches a bit on Muller and he's been criticized through the years, right, for his style of poetry. But uh, I'm wondering if perhaps he, he was simply misunderstood because he was purposefully trying to be economical with his words. As you said, maximum, I think you said maximum feeling with minimal words and Schubert wrote much the same way and I'm wondering first of all if you think that there was simply a misunderstanding about Muller throughout the years and second of all 
I'm wondering, what do you think he would have thought of Schubert's setting since he wasn't the hugest fan of text painting? I think he said it was like painting marble. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, Mueller in his own day was famous. He was really quite well known and applauded. Uh, If he'd lived longer... I would have been fascinated to see what his next steps might have been. But think about the mode of poetry that was in style at the time. Romantic verse was grandiloquent. It was rich. It was a tapestry embroidery of of Keatsian, Shelleyan gorgeousness. But what Müller decided to do was to use the forms of folk poetry and pour new wine into old bottles. Because after all, Winterreise is a study in psychological alienation, the alienation specifically of an artist. And... uh, Oh, you... I love it. I love it. <laughs> I actually do too, but he's very persistent. <laughs> so one of the things that's indicative, I think, of Mueller's originality is that he got a fan letter from none other than Heinrich Heine, who said, you have shown me the way. Thereafter, Heine indubitably a very great poet indeed, became what Graham Johnson calls the king of the quatrain. So he too uses simple folk-like forms and a pared-down vocabulary, whereas his early works are very Byronic. So Müller was gratefully acknowledged in his time for opening the path to a new poetic diction for modernity. So it was the music critic Eduard Hanslick in later 19th century Vienna, in the late 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, that I blame for the decline in Müller's reputation because Hanslick was utterly contemptuous of Mueller's verse. So the whole nonsense about Schubert having made a silk purse out of a sow's ear started then and rolled on uninterrupted until I put my foot down in the 1980s and 1990s. It's just so bizarre because Schubert was very discerning with with his poets and what words he chose to set to music. You know, we've spoken a lot in the podcast about the Bildung Circle and how he was exposed to quite a deal of poetry, um, in large part thanks to, you know, this circle um, promoting this exposure to to a wide variety of poetry. Uh, So he was very discerning, and I, I, I don't buy that either, that Schubert made something, you know, silk purse out of a sow's ear. I've never heard that phrase before, but I like it. <laughs> the, the more I went through the cycle after the epiphany in New York, the more I thought 
this is really good poetry. And he's doing something innovative, both in terms of poetic technique, in terms of a poetic investigation into human nature, and much else besides. So part of the whole enterprise from the beginning was to reclaim Muller's reputation as a very good poet. And fortunately, there was a wonderful scholar named Cecilia Bauman, who uh, wasn't a musicologist, but she was a very good Germanist. And she did, uh, helped with a complete edition of Mueller's works and wrote a book about him. That's excellent. I actually, I'm, I was realizing as you were speaking, that the reason I know that name was because I read her book. <laughs> yes. Yes, she's very good. So I'm wondering what you might think that Mueller might think about <laughs> Schubert's, Schubert's settings. I, I, when I wrote to you before, you know, I, I like this idea of there's a certain element of the obliteration of poetry and the warping of text when, when you pair any music to it, because you suddenly have a, a new lens with which you're seeing the words, and that simply can't be helped. He's turning the poem into musical architecture, musical gestures, musical agendas, which is what composers always do. And some poets don't mind it when their work is turned into musical prose. I mean, just think about De Lyermann. Part of the effect of that poem on the printed page is the austerity of it. All that white space surrounding these very short poetic lines. You can almost see the snowy wasteland surrounding both figures. And that, of course, gets turned into musical phrases that don't and cannot obey the spatial arrangement on the page. And that spatial arrangement is part of the meaning of the poem. Poets choose grandiloquent lines that romp on for a while or short threads of verse very self-consciously for effect. There are compensations in the musical sphere, and some poets recognize that. Mueller actually called for musical settings of his poetry at one point. Now, I'm a little, I suppose, different from some people who try to restore Mueller's original text because Schubert changed words on occasion. And I tend to think that Mueller would have been perfectly fine with it because Mueller was a compulsive reviser he tinkered constantly with his poems, and I think he would have understood. He had a very nice tenor voice and sang with choir. So I think he would have understood Schubert's changes for greater verbal musicality, or its opposite. If you want to impose a mouthful like Knurin, <laughs> 
that's an effect of its own chopping your way through all those consonants. (laughs) Absolutely. It's one of my favorite things about German and why particularly I, I, I tend to love this repertoire because I love dealing with the language. It's so descriptive um, in its own way. I know people often say that it's ugly, but I I love whenever someone says that because I say, no, no, let me show you why it's not. (laughs) I love the way Germans form neologisms by just taking existing words and smashing them together. It's my favorite. (laughs) So this episode of the podcast, we will be focusing specifically um, on Das Wirtshaus. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the state of mind of our traveler by the time he reaches the end, the edge of this graveyard. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about his deep physical exhaustion and the psychological pain and weariness that he's experienced. Just think of what kind of shattering experience Der Wegweiser just before it was. Now, one of the many lovely mysteries about this cycle is we have no concept of the flow of time. We don't know how much time lapses between one song and the next. But in this case, Der Wegweiser is in G minor, which Schubert would have known from Mozart is a tragic key. And I imagine the wanderer as massively stricken by the experience of Der Wegweiser. He has already been searching for signs and portents of death because he's in such a state of alienated despair. Part of the message, many messages of this cycle that to be utterly alone is to drive one to great desperation. It's not an experience anyone would want, but that's what the wanderer is existing in the midst of. He's already looked at the crow and hoped that it would feast on his body as carrion prey. He's already hoped that frost on his hair might indicate magical old age and the sooner coming of death. And behind this is another mystery of this cycle. He is not the Miller lad. We never see him contemplate suicide. He wants death to come to him and take him. So in Das Wirtshaus, he's finding another truly telling symbol of what he hopes is impending death, and that's arrival at a cemetery. And I love the symbol he uses at the beginning. Schubert must have loved it too, because the evergreen boughs on graves signify immortality of the soul because of the evergreen plant material of wreaths. But it's also what Austrian innkeepers used to put on their front doors to tell wayfarers that the new wine was available, the Heurige. And we have 
wonderful pictures of Schubert sitting with his friends at a cafe in Grinzing with glasses of Heurige with the new wine. So he would have understood this as a symbol of welcome. And here we have something that I couldn't believe I left out of my chapter on Das Wirtshaus. Oh, no. <laughs> I reread it for the first time in decades yesterday, and I left out something crucial, which means I must have discovered it only later. If you look at measure 22 in the song, that's the piano interlude between the wanderer singing, um, is there then in this house a chamber ready for me? I'm exhausted to the point of prostration. I am deathly wounded. So, and then there's this piano interlude, which we understand as wordless speech. When the wanderer then sings, Oh, unmerciful innkeeper, do you then turn me away? Now, that piano interlude uses the exact same non-legato repeated pitch figure that you find all throughout both Gute Nacht and Der Wegweiser. It is the journey itself telling him that he can't stop here that he's not going to die and be laid to rest in the cemetery. It's the wordless voice of the journey from within him. I think it's one of the most awe-inspiring compositional decisions Schubert made. First of all, you have this nearly abstract musical symbol of footsteps walking on a journey. Then it only comes back in tiny reminiscences until Der Wegweiser, which is that figure throughout. In fact, in Der Wegweiser, it invades the vocal line for the first time. So in the next song, Das Wirtshaus, when it comes back, we've had our memory refreshed. And I should have known a long time ago what that meant. But how exciting to have. That's one of those things, you know, that makes me excited to continue returning because you do, you just discover new things every time. Right. Something that I um, just discovered for myself last night. You know, there's been talk about uh, the key of F major. Uh, Schubert chose it because of its relation to the Kyrie from the Requiem Mass. And of course, a Kyrie is where you say, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. And here, the very next words that he speaks after after this motive you just mentioned, he says, oh, unmerciful, uncompassionate, where He's being told, no, your plea for mercy, for some kind of rest, it's not going to be heard. Exactly. Uh, well, it was a wonderful, I think, Greek musicologist named Thrasybulos Georgiadis who discovered that resemblance to Schubert's own F major Deutsche Messe, his, his own requiem. Now, F major has 
other associations as well that Schubert was very familiar with. It has long had connotations of pastoral restfulness. It's associated with lullabies. It's associated with nature, with going back to nature in death. Schubert composed a wonderful songs in F major, like the Meierhofer Schlaflied in F and An die Natur to nature in F major. And I think all of those pastoral associations are at work here. And there are also other associations as well that I love. There's a long tradition in the German-speaking world of wind band music for funerals. And this wind band music often has discanting lines where the trumpet or the higher brass will go above the voice and descant with it. And that's exactly what Schubert does in the setting of stanza two. Uh, Ihr grünen toten Grenze könnt wohl die Zeichen sein, die müde Wandre laden ins kühle, kühle Wirtshaus ein. And you have the topmost voice in the piano branching off to do wind band funeral music. I mean, this is why I adore Lieder. There's so much going on in this song that it's downright astonishing. One of my uh, friends who's a coach, actually, he used to say how, you know, opera's great and that's cool. You have the staging and the costume and the lights and the orchestra. And so you kind of have no option but to enter that that world or that universe that's created. But when you perform a song, you get to create the depths of that universe, like within yourself, and then project that. And it's little details like this that make that so exciting and so thrilling. You know, a long time ago, I had one of my more misogynistic colleagues come up to me and say, would you like to know what's wrong with all your work? He then went on to say that I destroy the experience of people who listen to the songs by insisting on didactically explaining everything. And I just looked at him and said, the more you know, the more you have to express. I believe that. It's my absolute core belief. Wow, I, <laughs> that is unbelievable to me that someone would say that to you. Oh, I've been insulted by the best of them. <laughs> In this, you know, in this kind of world, I don't understand um, the need to tear others down. 
who perhaps have differing opinions or differing approaches. I think it's all valid. We can all learn from each other. We absolutely can. And just because someone is explaining or or understanding something in their own way doesn't make another person's less valid. And, and I, I wish that there was a more generosity of spirit within this world, which is why I so appreciate people like you and people like um, Roddy Williams, the, the baritone. He is such uh-huh. a generous human, a generous performer. Former. He's darling. Oh, I, I'm obsessed with him. Um, but back to Das Wirtshaus. <laughs> I, I'm wondering, you know, um, Schubert and his relationship with God and religion is um, an interesting point throughout his, his life. I find that given that he was not spiritual himself, it's very interesting that some of his most moving music has a hymn-like quality to it. And so I'm thinking, you know, of Litainus Schiffers on Die Dioskuren. It's a prayer. Right. Why does he choose to create these heartbreaking moments of absolute genuine earnesty, <laughs> if that's a word? Why right. does he choose that, this particular style to communicate that? For one thing, let's be really precise about language, because I think Schubert was a deeply spiritual human being. What he was not was dogmatic. Dogmatic religion was his really somewhat tyrannical father's uh, stock and trade. But Schubert had a different notion of the spiritual dimension in life. And he said once that he wouldn't compose anything religious unless he was genuinely moved to do so by by the content of of the the poetry so i think he's deeply spiritual and of course when he knew that he was probably going to die of venereal disease he wrote an anguished prayer in his diary, and it's entitled, Mein Gebet, My Prayer. And it's a direct invocation to God for death and transcendence. And it's a prayer he was granted in this stunning repertory of music that will be immortal until the planet goes up in flames. So, yeah, and of course the wanderer is praying to death. So death is a great deity. And therefore this hymn texture is perfectly apropos, I think. What do you think Schubert, I mean, I'm not sure if I'm asking Schubert or the wanderer, really. Perhaps let's address the the wanderer first. What do you think the wanderer perceives death to to be? Is it simply a cessation of existence? Well, certainly cessation of psychological utter misery. And I always think that his idea of death is dissolution back into nature, which is my own view of death. One of the 
very heartrending things that Mirror does in this cycle is give us a wanderer with no belief in a transcendent afterlife. It's very clear from the beginning that there is no expectation of a God to offer hope of an exist a celestial existence beyond the earthly sphere. This is such a striking aspect of this cycle for its own time that when Schubert's publisher, Hoslinger, in the 1840s, made a special edition of Winterreise for a visiting French singer who had taken up Schubert as the love of his life and was going all over everywhere singing Schubert in French. <laughs> uh, much more a practice in the 19th century than it is now. But whoever translated Winterkaiser for a dual language Franco-German edition in Vienna made the French wanderer an absolute gushing fountain of piety and turned the sweetheart into uh, a belle dame sans merci, uh, just stereotypes all over the place. And to me, it seems so corrective in intent. Uh, my French audiences won't stand for this atheistic despair. So I'll fix it. That's fascinating. I had no idea about that. <laughs> By the end of Das Wirt's house, when he realizes there's there's no place for him here and that he must move on, it we're struck as we enter the next song that he he seems to then no longer care about this mortal coil, as it were, right? He says the the snow flies in his face, but he just shakes it off. And I'm wondering if perhaps even though he's forced to live within this physical form, He's no longer recognizing the pains or the torments or his former predisposition to the awareness of hot and cold, of burning and freezing. Part of what the wanderer is doing is trying on different ways of coping. So after he's denied room at the inn, this is a way to channel anger, anger and defiance. It's a very human thing to do, I think, to say, all right, I'll be this way. And when it doesn't work to say, well, damn it, I'll be that way. <laughs> I feel like you're explaining my life right now. <laughs> um, so while we're on the topic of, of moot, particularly, I, I'm wondering too what you think about the change in the order. So my listeners know that, of course, Schubert discovered the first 12. And then after he discovered the second set of 12, he did not change his order to match Mueller's, but instead made up his own. How is our wanderer different at the end of Schubert's Winterreise than at the end of Mueller's? 
well, I'm prejudiced, but I have a preference for Schubert's order. I think, I don't think he meant to re-scramble it. I think if he had found the complete cycle of 24 poems, he probably would have set it in the poet's order. With one exception, I think it was important to him that he switched Mut and Die Nebenzonen around. Um, Müller is really courting contrast in all capital letters and neon lights by putting the Byronic fist-shaking defiance right before Der Leiermann. But I like so much better having Die Nebenzonen as the penultimate song uh, because it's another image that impels revelation. So it makes much more sense to me to have Mut be unsuccessful defiance. Then you see the dog suns in the sky and you find in it the recapitulation of your bygone love and its vanishing. And then you see the hurdy-gurdy player. Can you see that there's a logic to that order? Absolutely. I also prefer that order. It feels a bit more um, tragic. It's a little bit more compelling also, in my opinion. I, I think I, I feel a little bit more <laughs> with Schubert's order. And just reverting to Das Wirtshaus for a second, I always chuckle when I think of any church congregation being confronted with a hymn like this one. You know, most amateur singers wouldn't be able to make their way through what is a thicket of chromaticism. It's it's only in the first two stanzas that you have relative diatonicism. And even so, you look at the piano introduction, and there's that telltale heightening of D minor, the D minor of Mozart's Requiem at the end of the piano introduction before you land on 5-7 of F and start Auf einen Totenacker in F. And if you go through this whole song, with each stanza, there's more chromaticism, more intensity, more traveling from one tonal reference to another. Some of my favorite moments of chromaticism are, for instance, where he, he talks about being mortally wounded on Bin Tötlich, right. I mean, if that doesn't sound like a mortal wound, I don't know what would. <laughs> I know, I know. And, and then I also love uh, the way he set nur weiter and then again nur weiter and the heightening of the... Of right. I mean, it's just, it's spectacular. And actually always, I always love as, as a song pianist, I work very hard to be able to sing the vocal parts. And I always find that particular spot challenging to sing, that dissonance on the um, first Nur Weiter in measure 25. <laughs> right, right. 
only onward. And Schubert can create tone clusters of dissonance that would drill holes in your teeth. I mean, he's so astonishing in his dissonance treatment. So he's saying, now onward then, just or only onward. Yeah, right, only onward. And that dissonance is irony in music, irony and pain in music. And also, look at Mueller's word music, noon, nur, so that the U vowel is intensified at nur. Mueller was very conscious of how poetry sounded uh, because he believed, as do most poets, that poetry is meant to be heard, not just read. And I love his thoughts about that you should not be aware of how it's constructed when you're listening listening to it. Yes, yes. And that's true, true mastery there where, you know, sometimes I read these authors and you can tell they're trying to write in a style that makes them sound so lofty or so knowledgeable. But the true master here is is one who's hiding that in a way that sets the art, I think, above his ability to be an artist. Well, he's certainly making making us realize that profound experiences don't have to be expressed in hoity-toity language, right? Completely agree. This particular moment of the cycle, in my opinion, and the way it always resonates with me, when I'm performing mostly when I'm performing, because then I have the option to, (laughs) to kind of infuse it with, you know, what I'm trying to communicate. But this to me is the climax, because this is where we see him being the most noble. He's been turned away even by death. And I particularly like to carry this nobility forward all the way through the end of the postlude. We see him with his, you know, his wandering stick, and we see him placing it in the ground and then taking a step, lifting it up and placing it in the ground and taking another step, moving forward. And this is the moment, I think, where I I feel the most for him. I'm cheering the most for him. This is definitely my favorite moment of the cycle. (laughs) It's lovely. And one of the things that makes it lovely, I think, is the human need for some sort of companionship. And if nothing else is available, then you sing to the crow circling overhead. You sing to your walking staff. You sing to a hurdy-gurdy player, even if he's a conjuration from your own mind. Well, I think we've talked about all of the topics that I wanted to discuss. And I honestly, no, we haven't even scratched the surface. questions but I'm wondering if there are any final um final thoughts that you would like to leave us with whether they're about Das Wirtshaus specifically or about the cycle as a whole well one of the things that makes this cycle something to grapple with is that it doesn't end yes I know there's 
silence and no further chapters after the last bar of Delilahman. But it opens out into what we sense that it's not good. After all, the music that is all that's left to him at the end is of an elemental, primitive nature as to be really a singularity. It's astonishing that it's so moving because it's pared down to almost nothing. And the almost nothing is all he has left. So to me, that makes this cycle not just a singularity in the history of the genre, but one of the most profound statements about what existence can feel like at points we all know. If we're intelligent beings whatsoever, we have moments in which death would be a preferred alternative, but there's some stubborn sticking place that won't let you actually commit the act. And yet what you have to make do with is so little and yet so precious. It's, it's a, a heart-stopping conundrum at the end of this cycle. It's what makes Delirman such a great poem. It's what makes Schubert's setting of this entire experience of not just loss of love with a lowercase l, but loss of love with a capital letter. So piercing. I started tearing up <laughs> during all of that. It so profoundly and, and beautifully put, Susan. I, I honestly cannot thank you enough. Um, as, as I've told you, I've, I've had your, your words rolling around in my mind for quite some time. And, and to hear um, a depth added to them in this way in, in a face-to-face -face meeting with you is probably the highlight of my year, maybe of the decade. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Well, oh, thank um, you. I love talking about this cycle. During the Schubert Bicentenary year, I traveled around with the very great singer, Sanford Sylvan, who died much too soon, and the marvelous pianist, David Brightman. And David and Sandy were traveling around performing both of the song cycles, and then a third program of selected Schubert songs. And I would meet up with them in this, that, and the other place to give pre-concert lectures. And it was one of the great adventures, privileges, experiences of my life. I just love that. I love you. Thank you for being here today. Well, Mandy, thank you so much. This this has been a pleasure. Oh, the pleasure was all mine, Susan. Thank you. I'm going to stop the recording right
Well, I just can't thank Susan enough for joining us here on Follow the Leader. She was even kind enough to pose for a screenshot for me to post on my Instagram. Let's hope she'll come back and visit us again soon. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you just can't get enough Winterreise in your life, then you might want to try singing Das Wirt's House with me. You can find me on YouTube as Mandy Madrid Sikich. Click on the Winterreise playlist and start singing. Remember that Follow the Leader can be found in all the usual podcasty places. And please, if you like what you hear, leave a review. It is honestly the best way you can support the podcast. Follow the Leader is a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative. You can learn more about their network of podcasts at cincinnatisonginitiative.org forward slash podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at leadernerd. That's at L-I-E-D-E-R-N-E-R-D. See you later, nerds! Tigger, come on. My cat wants to hog the stage every time. <laughs> Do you know what? My my puppy does the same thing, but he's out at school today. <laughs> so that's the only reason I have peace and quiet right now. <laughs> I think if I tried to close the door, he'd break it down. <laughs> if you love this podcast, then you'll love the Song Cycle podcast, also by Cincinnati Song Initiative. SongCycle introduces the coolest and awesomest leaders of the song world today and dives into getting to know them and their unique stories, where they think song in the 21st century is headed, and lots of other great topics. If you're looking for your next source of inspiration as you continue on your own musical journey as a song lover, look no further than SongCycle with me, your host, Sam Martin. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join the conversation.